Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to WAPOD. It's like WAPOW, but the only thing we're hitting you with is herstory facts. Yes, this is Whining About Herstory, where we drink wine and talk about women that you may not have heard of. We're also BFFs, and I'm Kelly. I am so in love with that intro. I <laughs> wish everyone could see my face. I was like, this I is either going like, to be <gasps> the dumbest thing or kind of funny. Oh my God, I love it. It's like no, WAPOW. No, because I've always, WAPOD. I've always loved it. <laughs> It's the WAP you didn't know you needed. (laughs) But I've always liked uh, our, you know, shorthand for W-A-H because we're whining. It's like, wah. So it works on so many levels. But the only thing we're hitting you with is her Yeah, I love it. I came up with that like three nights ago before I fell asleep and I was like, (laughs) yes. (laughs) That should be like our new tagline. Like, whoop-how, but the only thing we're hitting you with is herstory. Oh my God. I don't think you said who you are yet. Oh, I'm Emily and I am just fucking, I'm falling in love with you all over again. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a 10 minute break here. Uh, (laughs) We'll talk about the wine. We're just going to whop one out here. Yeah, there you go. So today, uh, we're still a little on the spooky side, even though we're a month out, or not a month, a week out technically two weeks i guess you know what scheduling know like we, halloween's a nightmare yeah <laughs> there was halloween there was other stuff and we started october a week late so we're just gonna finish it you late guys too. no one actually knows what time it is in 2020 this year has been like ten thousand years don't worry about it right so tonight we're drinking ghost runner which is an ungrafted red and it says this Our Ghost Runner Red Blend shows a dark ruby color with aromas of raspberry and ripe plum. Blackberry flavors and hints of spice show on the palate. This red blend, full of artful fruit, has an exotic mouthfeel and a lingering finish with hints of toasted oak. Anything that describes the mouthfeel is definitely worth a sip. What does exotic mouthfeel feel like? So Ghost Runner is the company. That okay. makes this, and then it's an ungrafted red. What does ungrafted mean? No idea. Does it mean like it's, it didn't have a, a severe skin burn? Or <laughs> You're like a skin graft. Oh, yeah. Maybe, Isn't but that what maybe, that means? I mean, yeah, but maybe it means something else in wine. To the Google. Mother Google has all the answers. Wine. Encyclopedias are dumb and expensive. That's why we have the internet. Podcaster's best friend. So it says, most grapevines in the world today are grafted. That is, the vine cutting of one type of grape is attached to the root of another type of grape. So it really is like skin grafting for grapes. Yeah. That's some Frankenstein shit. Interesting. That's crazy. You learn something new every day. All of our listeners who are into wine are like, you dumb bitches. Yeah, right. (laughs) We're sorry, guys. You know what? We're learning too. And if you make fun of someone who doesn't know something and wants to learn, then you are the worst kind of asshole. Right. So you get to go first. Oh, super Even though I have the darker story. Well, I was going to say, mine's going to be the palate cleanser before you need it. So what you guys should do is listen to Kelly's story and and then then come come back. back. (laughs) Welcome back. Oh, shit. Oh, hitting my mic. Where I'm sitting in a weird position today, so I don't know where what my are hands or bodies to? to be. Um, Cheers to the ongoing stress that is our lives right now. Yay. And this is no, It's November 6th right now, guys. And coping through and coping. wine and learning about crazy slash bass women or yeah. women who are way worse off than we are. Yeah. Or their victims are, at least. All right. Ooh, that's 
That's a good clink. clink. We're sitting really far away from each other tonight because we were lazy and didn't well, want to turn the table because well because we did the video first and we did it head on this time instead of from the side because I hate my profile and so in order to record looking at each other we'd have to completely like rotate everything and we didn't. Who's got the time? I really like this. This is a good red. It's it kind of has that initial bite but it mellows out very quickly. It is good. That's going to be annoying for you on the... <laughs> you swishing your wine? <laughs> Our listeners all just turn this off. I don't know. Maybe some people like what it. it. What Maybe is that called? ASMR. Yeah, ASMR. That's it. I'm going to speak very quietly into the mic right now, and you're going to be there's soothed weird into sleep. ASMR videos. Yeah. There's a Brooklyn Nine-Nine joke where uh, Jake Peralta, a.k.a. Andy Samberg, is pretending to be an ASMR talent. And at one point, he whispers at, in like a harsher tone, and his friend is like, "Don't strain your voice like that." That's funny. <laughs> I also crinkle paper. <laughs> All right, well, like, and cut sand. Kinetics. That actually is a real. Have like, you ever seen those uh, mandala videos where people make the designs using colored sand? Because the whole idea is you spend all this work on. Mm-hmm making this design but there's no way to preserve it or save it and it's all about just the fleeting nature of beauty those are the ones that they make it and they like tip the board up and it all yes. just oh god i hate those uh well it makes I've, me angry i've literally never watched a video to the end because i get mesmerized and then realize i'm being sucked in too deep i'm like i gotta do dishes or something guys no like <laughs> I've, I've never seen like the video start to end but i've seen like kind of like the middle in the end and it makes me so mad i'm like why see i am perfectly aware of the futility of my work because I do my dishes by hand and I know no matter how well I do the dishes I'm gonna have to do those fuckers again tomorrow and the next day until one day I fucking snap I'm I'm like that well I'm almost the opposite of that with puzzles like because if I own the puzzle when I put it together I don't want to break it back because I'm never gonna do it again so Mm -hmm. I'm like you know and so I've discovered we talked we've talked about this before but there is like a puzzle version like a Netflix version for puzzles. And I'm like, this was created oh. for people like me that want to do puzzles, but don't want to have to keep the puzzle when I'm done with it. That's awesome. I actually really love that. So I'm going to do that. Cheers to the subscription services. Cheers to those soups niche subscription services. Right. But yeah, because I was thinking about that the other day because I was talking to Justin and he's like, well, you could always just do a puzzle, you know, break it apart and then throw it away. I'm like, or give it to someone. He's like, yeah, or give it to someone. I'm like, like I could but not a ton like I feel like puzzles aren't a super common thing for people to do these days and I'm like yeah if I could just return it that would be nice (laughs) the puzzle library yeah that's I don't remember what it's called but it's essentially that I was listening or not listening to I was watching a tv show I don't remember what it was but basically this person was trying to brainstorm good ideas and they were like Netflix but for shirts, sure, I'm like, dude, we fucking have that. Like, isn't Stitch Fix kind of like that? Yeah, or you know, up. yeah, where you you try to find you return what you don't want. Yeah, like obviously there's more that. of a commitment, but st- yeah, it's like the same thing. So I'm like, because it was framed as a joke, like that's a stupid idea. It was like, dude, we literally have that. This was right. this joke was told like five years ago. What happened? People right. were like, this is a needed service. Yes. Someone watched that show and they're like, God damn. Right. All right. <laughs> All right. Who are you regaling us? Who are you hitting us with today, Emily? I'm going to hit you straight in the face. 
with Frances Glessner Lee. Yeah, this bitch has three names because she's that important. I don't know oh, but that's why she has three names. It's not. All right. My guess is she got married somewhere along the, the she line. T- you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's funny because and she's like, a- bitch, I'm keeping my own last name and yours. There is a running joke on True Crime Podcast. Never trust someone with three names because all the big killers are referred to by their first, middle, and last name. And that's because you don't want to get confused. You know, if if Frank Johnson murder someone. Right. The only All way the to, Frank yeah. Johnsons have a target on their back. The only way so to you keep have them separate, to do- you have to use their middle name. Yeah. So this is not that case, though. Even though That's we're still funny. in the spooky season, uh, I decided to cover someone who's creepy, but not in the murdery way. I felt like I, I had done murdery. enough with my cult of murderous I only went, villagers. I went, I went little murdery, not like big murdery. <laughs> yeah, like you know, just like a nice in between dabble murder. of murder. Yeah, like she just dipped her toes in the blood. It's right? she it's didn't fine. Like, fully bathe in it. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. All right. So our story starts in a dollhouse. It isn't one of those newer plastic Fisher Price doll houses that I definitely grew up with, but rather an older handmade one. Like any other dollhouse, it's decorated with tiny pieces of furniture, including a delicate looking metal frame bed and a plush wooden chair with like this knitted fabric over it. It even has a closet with doll clothes hanging on a rod. Hmm. This particular dollhouse has some stunning vintage looking red wallpaper with yellow roses that I definitely want as like an accent wall because I love it so much. And it really adds this like bohemian flair to the room. It's really the details that bring this dollhouse together, including a calendar hanging on the wall and little accessories scattered about like a child hadn't quite tidied up or maybe they bumped into it right. you know, when they were running through the room would truly be a great addition to any child's room, except for one thing. The body of a small doll lying in the closet next to a knife and her throat covered in red paint as if her throat had been slit. That's creepy. You see, this is not your average dollhouse, if you hadn't guessed. And it wasn't made for children. That would be fucked up. It has been painstakingly crafted by forensic scientist Francis Glessner Lee and was one in a series of startlingly accurate recreations of real-life crime scenes called The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. So she's a forensic psychologist or forensic dollhouse maker? Actually, that is probably the best way to describe her. We will get into it. So is this a woman who is obsessed with death or does she just have no work-life balance? Or is Both. this a wo- is this woman a crafty crime scene genius? All let's, three. Let's... I pick C or D. <laughs> I, I pick D, all of the above. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Frances Glessner Lee was born in Chicago on March 25th, 1878, 113 years and eight days before Kelly's birthday. Woo-woo. Her father was a wealthy industrialist, and so the family was afforded some high-end comforts, including their own stunning custom-designed home in a fashionable neighborhood. Marble was everywhere. Oh, yeah, that was kind of a thing back then. The home would be furnished by beautiful art and furniture, which were handpicked by Francis's father, who even wrote a book on the subject for the, like, ten other people in the world who needed a book on picking out expensive, gaudy shit for their mansions. (laughs) This marble goes with this color. Yes. And the, here's the thing. The more expensive it is, the more it goes with. Because expensive things go with everything. Right. Okay. So just make everything gold. I don't care how fucking ugly it is. If it's expensive, it goes with everything. A begin- So I wrote, this is the title of the book. 
How to pick stunning Victorian furniture for your bitchin' mansion, a beginner's guide for the rich and powerful. (laughs) Nice. He might have titled it something incredibly more boring. Reflecting the gender-divided public and private sphere ideals of the time, the home's public spaces were strong and masculine, while the more private quarters were soft and feminine. Lots of throw pillows. Just throw pillows everywhere. everywhere. The floor was literally just a blanket of sewn-together throw pillows. And they were all on sale at TJ Maxx, so don't judge me. Frances spent a lot of time in this home because it's where she and her brother were educated by private tutors because that's what you did when you were rich. You didn't go to school. The teachers came to you. Did she have a mother? She did. Okay, because you literally haven't mentioned her at all. She's literally house, not part just, of the story. Just, uh, I literally bring her up mother. Yeah, she, she's a rich wife and mother okay. doing her thing. It's not about her, Kelly. No, I was just making sure. Like, I was just like, oh, you know, was it only her father? His no. sperm was so powerful that when he jade off, what two maybe, children just magically maybe formed. Maybe her mom died. I don't know. <laughs> this is a Disney fairy tale where the mom dies. Yeah. <laughs> and he marries a bitchy stepmother. He sends him out to boarding school and favors her I mean, her even, two normal, even normal bitchy moms send their children off to boarding this school. This is true. So as was customary at the time, Francis was educated in the domestic arts, including crochet, sewing, interior design, knitting, embroidery, painting, and metalwork. <laughs> the last one's a little weird. I, that's why I put it at the end, because I read that. I was like, like the rest of them, I'm all like, yeah. And then you're like, metalwork? I'm that's like, definitely switched, because like, I think metalwork, I think shop class, or more even, of a guy thing now, or yeah. even like sculptures with metal i see as a more masculine pursuit nowadays i think it is well guys thank all the women who were pioneers in metalworking all the rich little girls who right? grew up learning to weld metal that's together that's so weird well and maybe it's a different type of metalworking than we're thinking cuz i feel like i don't see rich white girls like in a welding helmet welding shit together i that is all i want to see okay imagine the two little maybe girls maybe they're open fire making like swords imagine the two little girls from the shining and like their little dresses with the welding helmets like will you metal work with us forever and ever that's cute <laughs> oh that's gonna be my halloween costume next year anyway i literally added in my notes that last one made me pause but it's awesome <laughs> so francis's brother went on to harvard francis did the female equivalent and married a lawyer named blewett lee blewett b-l-e-w-e-t-t all right blewett <laughs> And when well, she he was really blew old. it. Yeah, apparently. Ah. The couple did have three children, but the relationship fizzled when he blew it See? and they divorced. Francis's son attributed to the... Bleh. Those are some hard words to put attributed. together. When I write these notes, I really need to think of what I'm going to have to say when I've been drinking. <laughs> Francis's son attributed the divorce to Francis's, quote, creative urge coupled with high manual dexterity, the desire to make things, high which the husband did not share. High manual dexterity. Well, it's like they... I know, but it sounds dirty. No, no, no. no. For sure. Uh, she was giving and she was not receiving or not receiving well. But yeah, it, but it, he's the one that left. Well, they t- divorced. I don't know. Hmm. It, it it seems like she, neither of them were probably getting what they want out of the exactly. relationship. We'll go with Doesn't that. matter. He's not really a thing anymore, but that's where she gets the Lee and her, her name from. The yeah. Lee and her Lee from. Jesus Christ, Emily. Okay. This seems like such a specific drive. 
like we're talking about this manual dexterity thing, but Francis followed her bliss. She was good friends with her brother's classmate, Dr. George Burgess Mulgrath, who was a pathology professor at Harvard and chief medical examiner. Definitely the kind of person I want to be besties with. Yeah, no, hands I want to get drunk with him and hear all, all of the, the stories. stories. Okay, yes. top 10 weirdest things you found in a body. Top 10 weirdest ways people died. I don't care if you get gory. All of the orifices, all of the crevices, name them now. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me, please. Let me get you another whiskey, good sir. I gotcha. Dr. Magrath sparked Francis's interest in the budding field of forensic investigation, a field that would spur countless armchair investigators who use their most basic broad stroke understanding of criminology and forensics to argue online, myself included. I hear you all, you crime junkies and murderinos. I'm with you. I'm right there. I definitely know who killed John Ramsey. <laughs> we all know who did it. Anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get sued. That that family got pretty litigious, understandably yeah, so. They did. I also want to mention this but new interest. Understandable. Here's the thing. If people were accusing me of killing know, someone, whether I did it or not, I would probably be suing them if I could. So I also want to mention this new interest came to Frances when she was in her 40s. So remember, you're never too old to pursue something new, especially if it's Ever. creepy. Always pursue creepy things. Unless it's like a ghost, then don't Don't pursue follow them. ghosts, don't guys. Do that. it's, it's, you know, it's, the whole if you hear a sound in the basement. Actually, I can't say that because I'm that type of person that if I'm like home alone and I hear something, I'm like, what was that? And then I go try and figure I out have what to, it was. I have to tell them. I have to prove to myself it's nothing. Exactly. But I'm like, one time it's going to, I'm going to be that kid in a horror movie. Yep. Yeah, we are all. Here's the thing. That's why we get mad at horror movies, because we get to sit back and observe the situation remember, from the outside in the safety of our own homes. Yeah. But we are all that dumb bitch checking the closet. Tell our friend Cameo that like because we watched something with her and she's like, she's like, this is so stupid. Why would people do that? And we're like, if you were in that situation, 90 percent of the time, you're going to do that same thing yeah. because you're not thinking straight you don't know you're in a horror movie we're watching a horror movie we knowing it's a horror movie shit. yeah so we, I, I remember we had to have this like whole discussion with her and she's like well it's still stupid and we're like no it's not <laughs> <laughs> so francis was truly a first generation crime junkie murderino wine coven member and if you can name all three podcasts i'm referencing with those fan names i will 100 percent. this is a promise send you some stickers and magnets she would Slide also our DMs. be part of the funerary cult. She also part of the funerary cult. She would be a historian. Absolutely. She is herstory, Kelly. I know. But she, she already is. She would be a fan. That's what I'm saying. But a woman pursuing a profession in an academic field, let alone one which studied how people were brutally murdered, was not common nor encouraged. But I love Kelly's little jerk off motion. No, there. it's like the psycho knife. Oh, those are very similar motions, Kelly. You need to have the knife to make that translate. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just jerking off an invisible dick. <laughs> Context, Emily. <laughs> but Frances decided to pursue her fascination with forensics using her feminine flair. She fucked everyone at Harvard. No, that's not where the story is going. Not that kind of feminine flair. Dang. I know. I, I would have totally been right. on her side. 
So Frances played the part of a proper privileged lady and in 1931 broke into the world of forensic professionals at Harvard by endowing a department of legal medicine and making it rain with other financial gifts, which supported related fields of study. So basically, when her uh, parents had died, she inherited their wealth. So she's just fucking rich as shit. All right. Right. Stacks on stacks on stacks. She even helped to establish the George Burgess Mag... I'm, I feel like I say that dude's name wrong every time. It's M-A-G-R-A-T-H. Magrath? Whatever. Magrath, yeah. I, this isn't about him. I don't care. Magrath Library and the Harvard Seminars in Homicide Investigation, later called the Harvard Association Associates in Police Science Seminars. So she's cool. bankrolling all of these, yeah, all these different classes, things. programs, library, books, everything to further this field. Yep. At Harvard. Which is cool. The best place to be doing this. So Frances carved out even more space for herself by basically being the event organizer for these seminars, putting on extravagant banquets at the Ritz-Carlton for the participants, putting together the floral arrangements, menus, table settings, and the fucking curriculum. Wow. So she's so, like, I'm going to do all these feminine things, and then I'm just going to slip in my knowledge and everything else. Underneath. Yeah, and she she did partner with other professionals at Harvard. But still, that's super cool. But yeah, cool. so she's she's really like the, the band leader of this whole thing. By organizing these seminars, Francis gained access to the professional attendees, their conversations, and their knowledge, which seriously, to be a fly on the wall of a homicide investigation seminar... Would be what a so dream. Interesting. Can I audit a, a homicide investigation seminar? Here's the funny thing. As as interested as I am in true crime, I bet when you get a bunch of professionals talking about it and like You're getting not gonna into understand the minutia, like half of it. I'm not going to understand it or I'm going to get bored because they're talking about something I don't care about or I'm like, what? So... Francis was also exposed to the criminological theory that the key to solving crimes was scientifically in analyzing a crime scene, even in the case of a non-crime, like an accident, suicide, yep. or nas- nas- national death. Fuck, that's why I feel like I'm in right now. Natural death, etc. The scene told a story, and that was the key to truth. This sounds super duh to us, but we've grown up on CSI, NCIS, SVU, OMG, and WTF, and more. These ideas had to come from somewhere. I love that. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad you picked up on that. But it reminds me. Have you ever seen um, whatever it was? Probably yes. The show on Netflix where they interview um, Mindhunter? Edward Kemp, Mindhunter. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Do you like- really think? That I haven't watched Mindhunter. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of the... Well, I'm also asking the listener. But yeah, because I, I couldn't think of the name. Yeah, I, well, I didn't finish season two because the beginning of it kind of hit a little hard. I get with that. the issues he's having. Yeah. I I hated watching that. I like. And I, it supposedly gets better. It's kind of like the first few episodes are rough and then it's supposed to get better. And I just never made it past those first few episodes. Yeah, I, I really struggled with that because I felt like... With all of the brutal murder they're talking about, that's where I really felt like targeted as a person. Like, oh, God, that's me. I haven't gotten through season two because Jerry and I were watching it together and then he kind of got burnt out and I just haven't picked it back up. I need to finish it. Anyway, 
but it reminds me of that show because they're realizing these things about serial killers and, you yeah. know, categorizing them. And as someone who listens to eight hours of true crime podcasts a day, I'm like, well, fucking duh. But people had to think of that and come up with that in the first place. Right, exactly. So that armchair investigators could have podcasts and then tell me about it. Yeah. And then I could absorb it and then start and analyzing then like, no, 911 calls and interviews with Chris fucking shoot him in the face, Watts. Anyway. <sighs> such an asshole this isn't about him no she was also familiar with the challenges that forensic investigators faced at the time coroners didn't have to have medical degrees they were usually a lay person who was elected to office like on what grounds what does that campaign even look like like hey guys i'm a plumber but I also like looking at dead bodies so vote for me that's a weird one what the fuck like kind of popularity contest gets a coroner elect or a medical examiner like, like I, I know i think today some of like the state or city coroners are still elected but you have to have a degree yeah like there's not like a campaign it's more just like these are all the coroners in the area who do you want to be the state coroner yeah i don't know that's weird yeah like hey guys i'm the electrician and i kind of would like to see what happens if i put a bunch of electricity through a dead body so elect me as the coroner so i can get in on that shit what? So there was also no training for law enforcement in how to collect and preserve medical evidence. This meant that murders were getting a- murderers were getting away scot-free due to the ignorance of law enforcement. Yep. And this isn't oh, a, a shot time at to be alive. This isn't a shot at law enforcement. This is just the it's way the it was. You're, you're not getting that. the training. How the fuck are you supposed to process yeah. a crime scene properly? The fact that any crimes ever got solved back in the day is really blows my (laughs) mind. Absolutely blows my mind because even with all the technology today, there's still shit we cannot figure out. Frances once again combined her domestic abilities with her fascination of criminology. She got creepy and crafty. Yay. I love her so much. Through the 1930s and 1940s, armed with a stack of case files, Francis embarked on a truly impressive enterprise by constructing 20 dioramas which depicted real death scenes in extreme delicate detail. Wow. These dioramas were all handcrafted by Francis and while perhaps the choice of wallpaper and other inconsequential details were left up to Francis's creativity and design sense, she made sure that the scenes were as accurate as possible. Wow. Now, I... I Talk about that throughout my notes, but I also read somewhere that some there were some of her um, nutshell studies that were like amalgamations of different cases, but they're all based hmm. on real okay. death scenes. So making dioramas may seem like a random pursuit, but Frances had actually made dioramas before. This is where her mother comes in. She made her first one in 1913 when she was like around 35 years old, which depicted the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which included 90 musicians, their instruments and instrument cases, sheet music, stands, and more. This was a birthday present to her mother. Like, let's all just take a moment to lower our heads and shame at our inadequacy because none of us will ever stop that Mother's Day present. Jesus Christ. So she's already kind of into this pursuit. And she's like, I can use this. She's like, I can combine two loves. Yeah. Frances also made a statement with her dioramas. Many of them depicted scenes of violence against women, which took place in depressing locations like seedy boarding houses and other environments of the country's disenfranchised population. Harvard Magazine described this well, saying, quote, She disclosed the dark side of domesticity and its potentially 
deleterious effects. Hmm. Many victims were women led astray from the cocoon-like security of the home by men, misfortune, or their own unchecked desires. So it's kind of that narrative of the ruined woman or the fallen woman. In the book, The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death by Corinne May Botts, she writes, quote, On one hand, the nutshells depict the everyday isolation of women in the home and expose the violence there. They can be viewed as a precursor to the women's movement. So she's like, there's a feminist spin here. Yeah, Yeah, like there's a there's a a story of, you know, women's situations being told here that doesn't mean, however, the scenes are free of issues. Francis had a very privileged upbringing, so it has been argued that these scenes are just perpetuating stereotypes about gender and culture that she had about victims of violent crime. So, well, you ended up dead here because you were a fallen woman. That kind of thing. Right. Who knows? I, I think it I think it just shows that our world and uh, our idea about gender and violence can be complicated. It is. And even when we're telling the truth, like, well, how do how are we gonna view this? Or what are you trying to tell with this? I don't know. No, I get it. Like our every like how we were raised and our our personal beliefs and stuff are reflected in everything we do. Exactly. The goal of these dioramas would not was not necessarily to solve the scene, but rather to allow allow budding forensic investigators to practice evaluating a scene and identifying important elements that help to tell the story of what happened. Was it suicide, murder, an accident? And more importantly, why do you think so? Because I don't I, I was trying to find like I want to find a diorama. And I want to know, like, what the quote-unquote answer is. I couldn't find that anywhere. Everything I found was like, what the fuck do you think? And why? And what's telling you about that? These dioramas became known as the nutshell studies of unexplained death because Francis believed that if a scene was evaluated properly, the truth, quote, in a nutshell, would be revealed. Hmm. Not only did Francis painstakingly create these dioramas, even being careful to choose the shades of blood, what a gem. She developed a method for evaluating a crime scene, which could be practiced using the dioramas and then also easily replicated for law enforcement. So because a death scene can be so overwhelming, Francis proposed that using a geometric pattern like a clockwise spiral could help investigators method. Methodically. Methodically. I'm trying to say methodically. And it's not. That's not how like you astronomically. say it. Astronomical. <laughs> uh, methodically evaluate a scene. This method could also be easily taught to others and applied to any scene. Yeah. Like, literally, wherever you're going, you can start. If you're you know, overwhelmed, just start at one spot and work Start your way here and then, spiral. yeah, just work clockwise into a spiral moving further into the scene. This method could also easily be taught to others and apply to any scene, meaning law enforcement could go get up to speed quicker. Because, yep. like, you and I can go into a scene and start using that now. We're probably not going to be very good at it, but we will have a... A starting excuse point. Excuse me, wine yeah. burp. A starting point in a way to start looking at all the pieces. The nutshell dioramas were put into use uh, as a training tool of the Harvard Associates in police science seminars, which Francis had started. So they were put into practical use for law enforcement training. While Francis is most well known for her nutshell studies, she did so much more. 
Frances became the first female police captain of the New Hampshire State Police and the first woman to be invited to the International Association for Chiefs of Police. Wow. I really tried to find, like, she she just seems to, like, have a fascination with this, and she's obviously knowledgeable, but I couldn't quite figure out where she acquired the knowledge because I couldn't find anything about her attending school or, or if she just really, like, studied up on her own and if the, I mean, if the doctor helped her. But she... Two of them. Well, there's two gnats. Yeah. They're multiplying. The sperm is so powerful. It just produced another gnat. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah. Is it just that she learned all her knowledge from talking to these Harvard people as she produced these seminars? Or, yeah, did she actually go to school? Yeah, or? but I mean, clearly she's qualified because, like, even for an educated woman, the barriers to these higher end positions were great oh, and yeah. many, so... Frances was also described as, quote, unquestionably one of the world's most astute criminologists. She was acquainted with and respected by top criminologists all over the world. So, like, that's cool. Girl knew her shit. Despite all of this success and acclaim, Frances referred to herself as, quote, a hobbyist. She's just a little crime junkie. Except she's like captain of the police. Yeah, she's like captain of the crime junkies. Frances Glessner Lee died on January 27, 1962, at the ripe old age of 83. A few years later, in 1967, the Harvard Department of Legal Medicine, which Frances had endowed, closed due to financial reasons. Aww. Bummer. I'm sure they still do some kind of shit there. It's it's Harvard, know. right? Like, don't they? I don't know. I only when I when I think of Harvard, I just think of Harvard Law. Fair. Uh, the nutshell studies were moved to the to Baltimore, where they are used as teaching tools and preserved. Oh, that's cool. Legacy. That's not me slurring. That's me being punny. There was a Smithsonian exhibit called Murder is Her Hobby, Francis Glessner Lee and the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death from 2017 to 2018, during which the nutshells made a rare public appearance. Because these things are old as shit and they're very delicate and they have to be maintained. Francis Glessner Lee has been described as the godmother of forensic science and it's easy to see why. She combined traditional feminine skills with her fascination of forensics, which at the time was a very masculine pursuit to help provide training and education for future investigators. Kelly, I do want to take a moment and show you the scene that I described in the beginning and just see if there are any details that jump out at you. Isn't that wallpaper just gorgeous, though? I, we'll, we'll post this picture on our Instagram because this, I think, was one of my favorite scenes. There's also one of a, a woman, like, splayed out on the floor of the, like, sitting room of her home. And she's deaf been murdered and assaulted. And that one was, it was really interesting because that one immediately, I was like, I know what the fuck just happened here. Yeah, this kind of looks like a suicide. Her See, head, I don't like know. in a box. I think that's, like, where she felt. Why would you slit your throat in your closet, though? I don't know. I mean, but yeah. there are a bunch of it, liquor bottles. But and, but yeah, Francis, there's a bunch of liquor bottles. But some of them are knocked over. So maybe there maybe was there was a, a disturbance. Maybe yeah. It's interesting that you she can't was a find, sex worker and her her client killed her. You know, it's interesting that you can't find like what people think it is. You know, and oh, he, there's somebody like hanging themselves. Yeah, yeah. That one's sad. Um, and and Francis would include red herrings in these Ooh. scenes. Because, again, you're trying to train your yeah, eye exactly. on, like, what details are what's important, important and what's aren't. not. Yeah. 
And there there was one um, when I was trying to find like the answer. So these scenes would come with a narrative. Like here's who's involved. Here are the witnesses. Here's what you know as an investigator going into the scene. And one of them was a gentleman who was lying on his couch. He was a town drunk. There was like a bunch of liquor balls around. And he was dead. And the coroner quickly was like, well, it was alcohol poisoning. But there, there were some other players, like the daughter was upstairs watching a Western with a lot of gunshots, and she didn't hear anything. And then the guy renting the room next door, well, he saw the gun lying next to the drunk man and decided to put it away because they didn't think a drunk guy should have access to it. And basically, in this article, people could submit what they thought happened. Everyone was all across the board. Everyone That's had a completely different idea of what the fuck happened to this guy. Someone said, well, clearly the boarder was in love with the daughter, but the father was some drunk asshole, so they decided to kill him. So the boarder took the shotgun and, like, while the drunkard was passed out, put it against the heel of his shoe and shot him up to... I was like, is that a thing? What? Like, I don't know anything about medicine, but I feel like if you shoot someone through the heel of their foot and then put their shoe back on, it's still going to be noticeable. I mean, at very Is least- it even going to kill them? No. <laughs> or just blow their leg apart? Like, yeah, that, what? that one. So... It's really, really interesting. And actually, if you want to get a closer look at these nutshells, you can go to americanart.si.edu forward slash exhibitions forward slash nutshells because they have a thing on there where you can click on it and like your I whole screen to, is the nutshell. I have to do that. Yeah, your whole screen is the nutshell and you can kind of like scroll around to get it from different angles and it's really interesting. But yeah, that is the story of Frances Glessner Lee, the godmother of forensic science. Mm-hmm. So that that was my like spooky palate cleanser for this month because we've covered some dark shit. Yes. I don't think we topped uh, Belle Ganesse, though. No, probably not. Although, mm, I don't know, you're like Martha Stewart of murder, the soap maker. Yeah, my she the soap maker of Correggio. Sucked. She was fun. So I am covering a slightly darker woman. Her name is Catherine Knight. Oh my god! Did you just like choke on? Oh your my wine? god! I know her. This is okay. This beats everyone. Catherine Knight sucks ass. She's such a fucking creep. She only kills like one person. Yeah, but it's so bad. Okay, I was literally <sighs> swallowing the last bit of wine <laughs> when Kelly said that name, and I literally almost spit it out by exclaiming. Pour myself some more wine to read this story. I really Would thought- Would you like some more, too? Uh, I'm good, but I, re- I thought we about covering her. We have a whole other thing after this. Oh, we do. Yeah, I'll, I'll drink more wine. <laughs> Guys, we're Whoa. doing- <laughs> Here you go. You can pour your own wine. I'm going to clean that up. Sorry, we have a little spill. Kelly spilled some red wine on her computer, which actually it looks like blood. Oh, shit. And now I'm hitting my mic. It looks like blood spatter, which just seems wholly appropriate for this episode. No, don't throw things at me. I can't catch when I'm sober. That's true. Oh, I'm so excited. I actually, I thought about covering Catherine Knight, but I've I've heard her story so much, and I'm just like, I just don't fucking feel like... See, I haven't heard her story, so we're... All good. right. Well, obviously you have, because <laughs> well, yeah. you're telling it to us. So Catherine was born and raised in a very dysfunctional and unconventional environment. Her mother was Barbara Ruffin, and at the time she was married to Jack Ruffin and lived with him in the small town of Aberdeen, New South Wales. Is New South, that's Australia? 
Are we yes. down under? I think we're down with under. the kangaroos and the wallabies. Right. Don't so, Emily. Yeah. Stop. No. Stop. <laughs> um. So Barbara and Jack at the time had four sons. However, Barbara was bored and began an adulterous relationship with her husband's coworker and friend, Ken Knight. Dirty fucking dog. Right. And while these families were close, this was a very small, very conservative town. And so when people caught wind of it, this became a major scandal to the point where Barbara and Ken, so the the or the guy she was cheating okay. with. Sorry, go on. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say Barbara and Ken. Like, are they Barbie and Ken? Is Maybe. that what this is? That would be funny. Uh, but they decided to leave Aberdeen and move to Moray. None of Barbara's sons went with her. Yeah, that's just it. The two older ones stayed with the father. The two younger ones went to an aunt. And they had very normal lives that are not worthy of being on this podcast. And that's a good thing. (laughs) However, Barbara had four additional children with Ken, including twin girls born in 1955. Catherine Knight was the younger of this set of twins. I didn't know she was a twin. That's spooky. I'm teaching you more more things. Oh, I hate that. In 1959, when Catherine was four, her... Not her father. Her um, her mother's previous husband, Jack, <laughs> died. And the two boys that had been living with him came to live with their mother and Ken. So now there's six children in the home. Like the nasty Brady Bunch. Right. <laughs> Ken's father was an alcoholic who was openly violent and, intimidate- and intimidating. He would rape his wife and Barb- uh, his wife, Barbara, and Barbara. His wife, and Barbara. No, his wife. Barbara, up to 10 times a day. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say Ken's father was like no, this? Ken. Or Ken. Oh, okay. So Ken, Ken is Catherine's an abusive, father. rapey piece of shit. Yes. In turn, unfortunately, Barbara often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how she hated sex and men. I mean, if I was in that situation, I would probably hate sex and men as well. Yeah, maybe don't like tell your kids that and breed toxic behaviors and ideas about men and sex and yeah no it gets worse Catherine would go on to complain to complain that her mother or to her mother oh that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sexual act that she didn't want to perform and her mother replied with put up with it and stop complaining oh fuck so that was obviously a little later in life Catherine also claims that she was frequently sexually assaulted by several of her family members, though not her father. So, like, probably her brothers. Oh, no. Um, I thought they were going to be fine. Fuck them. Which, I mean, it doesn't say. It just says several members of the family. Yeah, well, okay. Um, Which continued until she was about 11. Although there are minor doubts about the details, psychiatrists tend to accept her claim as all of her family members confirm the events did happen. Shit, that's awful. And then for everyone to come, I don't know, like, it's good they're not lying about it. Everyone's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was happening. Like, I don't know. What a horrific childhood. Right. So apart from her twin sister, the only person Catherine was really close with was her uncle, Oscar Knight, who was a champion horseman, which is pretty neat. Um, Unfortunately, he committed suicide in 1969, and she was absolutely devastated, although she... Uh, maintained that her ghost would often visit her or that his ghost would often visit her. Okay. Yep. It's weird. Just knowing what she did later, everything has this awful tinge to right? it. Doesn't so it? I'm not trying to be a judgy bitch. Um, she just so this family, the, the family then also ended up moving back to their hometown of Aberdeen that same year. So 1969. She would go on to attend Muswellbrook High School 
where she was a loner and was remembered is is remembered as a bully who often bullied smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy with a weapon and once in, and was once injured by a teacher who subsequently f- was found to have acted in self-defense. Oh my god. Yeah. And you know what nowadays teachers are trained to see that behavior as usually a product of abuse. Exactly. They kind of understand. Yeah. By contrast, when she wasn't angry or being an asshole, uh, Catherine was actually a model student and often earned awards for her good behavior. So, like, she was either, like, supremely one way or supremely the other. That blows my mind that you can basically assault a teacher and It sounds like she may have been bipolar. She had swings, extreme swings in one direction or the other. Um, So she left school at 15 without having learned to read or write. But she was able to gain employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. So cutting out the material oh, okay. for other people to sew together. Okay. 12 months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job, cutting awful. O-F-F-A-L. It's a oh, it's food product, I think. Like it, it's with butchers, right? It's something to do with meat. It's like cutting the crap off. It's taking out the entrails and organs. Awful is entrails and organs. So it's cutting out the entrails and organs of animals. So yeah, it's with a butcher. What a fucking dream so call, job yeah, that she is. calls that as a dream job. I there, will say, I think there are some days I'd rather be elbows deep in a pig's anus than like staring at my inbox, right? which is overflowing. <laughs> um, she was quickly promoted to boning. So taking out the bones of animals. Okay. And th- then she was given her own set of butcher's knives. At home, they would hang above her bed, quote, they would always be handy if she needed them. I would be terrified that they would, like, come loose in the middle of the night and stab me. me. Um, This was a habit, though, she continued until her carceration. Everywhere she lived, she would hang these beds above her knife. Her beds above her knife. Yep. That's right, Kelly. You commit. This is whining about herstory. There's wine involved. You can't expect us to always be articulate. <laughs> All right. So now we come to her marriage to David Kellett. Poor son of a bitch. So Catherine first met her hard drinking coworker, David Stanford Collette, in 1973. So obviously kind of attracted to someone who's probably similar to her father, unfortunately. David had previously worked for the railways at Coffs Harbor, and his best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident. A shunting accident? <laughs> I'm learning so many words. So basically... I don't know what a shunt... If he's working at a rail yard, uh, I can only imagine it was horrifying. Because nothing... Um, so shunting is to push or pull a train or train part from the main line in, into the siding or from one track to another. So he, like, got run over by a train car or something. Oh, and to see that? He was also later present when a train hit a school bus that killed six children. Shut up. So basically, this guy has seen some some shit. shit. All involving trains. Like, I want to say, like, man, he's got bad luck. But I guess when you're working with trains, there's a lot of horrible Uh, things that can go wrong. The one good thing was in that incident where he was present when the train hit a school bus, he was able to help uh, rescue several injured kids and remove, unfortunately, also remove the bodies of the dead ones. But still, he was able to help people. Okay. When you said, like, the one good thing that happened when the school bus full of children was hit, Um, I was like, where are you going? But his, his very heavy drinking was a 
attributed to the fact that he had seen these terrible, he's terrible things. He's definitely got PTSD, and he's definitely not coping in a healthy yeah. way. He was transferred to Muswell Brook after causing several derailments due to falling asleep while shunting. Oh, no! <laughs> Dude! I just included the word shunting because... I mean, that's what he was doing, but I could have explained it, but I just really like the word it shunting. It sounds so bad. Isn't a shunt something that you also can put in like a... Like a heart. A heart? Yeah. yeah. Or is that a... Is it a no, shunt no, or is it a shunt? It's a... Stint. Stint. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, shunts So like a his dirty behavior word. continued deteriorating until he eventually lost his job with a rail company. That's However, so he sad. soon got a job working at the Abattoir, which I believe is a butcher. Yes. I just really like that name. Abattoir. I, what a nice fancy word for the butcher. Right. Um, where he became close friends with Catherine's brother, who also worked there, which wasn't mentioned before. Um, after he began dating Catherine, he also occasionally partnered with her twin. <sighs> this twin that shit. Was, that was my classy way of saying that he totally just fucked her sister. <laughs> and you said it anyway. <laughs> Often, if her husband got into a fight, Catherine would step in and back him up with her fists. So she was not afraid to fight with him. Wait, oh, did you already say that they got married? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, I think I got really no. They haven't gotten married yet. They haven't talk. gotten married yet. Okay. So this is when they were still dating. She, Catherine, was known to be physically threatening to people who had upset her. So the fact that she would step in when he was in fights with other people didn't really surprise anyone. They would go on to get married in 1947, and at her request, um, the couple arrived to the service on her motorcycle, and he was uh, very intoxicated. As soon as they arrived, Catherine's mother gave David some advice. Quote, The old girl said to me to what? So this is David quoting what Catherine's mother said to him. Okay. So the old girl said to me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way and do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her, which means cheating on her, um, or she'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She told me she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Okay. First of all, if the parent of your partner says this kind of thing to you on your wedding day, run. Yeah. Like, seriously. No, seriously, run, because my next sentence is this. On their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle David. She later explained it was because he fell asleep only after having intercourse three times. Fucking champion over there. Jesus. And he's like, how old is he at this point? He's not like 18. No. But here's the second thing. Second thing really quick Well, and he's a heavy drinker, and that usually inhibits performance yeah your dick does not work when you're drunk but my second thing about that whole like vow deal like the mom is saying this whose fucking fault is it right like she's a fucking mess in her own right and i'm not trying to trivialize the trauma she went through or that Catherine went through but i was like I don't know. It just, I'm like, yeah, you're one to talk. This is kind of like on you. You ready? Yes. Okay. I'm just angry. Yeah, no, it's fine. I, it's, this is a very anger-inducing story. Yeah. So the marriage proved particularly violent. Shocker. Um, you mean it didn't stop at the wedding right? night strangling? <laughs> and on one occasion, a heavily pregnant Catherine, so yes, she got pregnant, Burned all of David's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan simply because he had come home late. Jesus Christ, that's fucking awful. In fear for his life, 
David ran to a neighbor's house before collapsing, and he was treated for a severe skull fracture that evening. Police wanted to press charges, but as a typical abuser, Catherine changed her behavior to make her husband, you know, feel safe and like her again and talked him out of dropping the charges. Oh, my. Kim. Okay. Talked him into dropping the charges. Sorry. (laughs) So we just talked about this in the last episode we recorded, which will come out after this. So time is weird. Um, Yay, time is weird. The gender of the abuser and the victim is completely inconsequential. Abuse is abuse. Men can and are victims of domestic violence. And that's exactly what this is. And. The poor guy probably felt emasculated. Like his wife is the one who's oh, yeah. beating it's him. Terrible. But then beyond that, you know, abusers, men, women, whatever, use the same tactics. So she's like, no, honey, I didn't mean, you know, and he's committed to this marriage, you know. So it's just, it's really sad. And I don't want to not mention that because this is a really important story for men also. Like, Men can be victims of abuse. We need to believe victims of abuse regardless of gender because this woman's batshit fucking awful and it only gets worse until someone someone ends up dead. That's exactly it. This story, this is where it kind of takes a turn here. So in 1976, Catherine gave birth to their first child, Melissa Ann, which is a really nice name. I actually do like that name. Uh, Shortly after Melissa's birth, David was like, Fuck this shit. Left her for another woman and moved to Queensland. Which honestly, good on him because she's awful. Right. The next day, Catherine was seen pushing her new baby in a pram down Main Street, violently throwing the pram from side to side. She was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. No idea where her child was at this point. After being released, though, Catherine placed two-month-old Melissa because they gave her her child back, apparently, on a railway line shortly before a train was due. She then stole an axe, went into town, and threatened to kill several people. Jesus Christ! A man known as Old Ted, that's literally all he was known (laughs) as, like, they literally put it in quotes and everything. Oh, my God. He was foraging near the rail line and luckily rescued Marissa, or Melissa, by all accounts, literally minutes before the train showed up. Oh, my God. Okay. Postpartum depression, very real, very serious, needs to be treated. It doesn't mean someone ca- is incapable of being a mother. No. But it's it's because it's, it's we It's very know, hard. It's because we know that Catherine has this long, long history of violence that is not related no. just to, you know, Let's having a baby. giving her kids back. Like, it, it, but here's the thing. It's going unreported or unprosecuted for a variety of reasons. And I think there's a lot of sexism in this because, well, she's a woman. Like, right. what was she really going to do? She's just being crazy. Don't worry right. about it. Catherine was, of course, arrested. Thank God. And again, taken to St. Elmo's Hospital. But apparently she recovered and signed herself out the next day. Yeah, that shouldn't have been allowed. Oh, my God. A few days later, you know, because she had to take a little break. Catherine slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded she drive her to Queensland to find David. Jesus Christ! Right? They Stop sto- giving this woman chances! They stopped at a gas station and the woman managed to escape. But by the time the police arrived, Catherine had taken a young boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. Oh my god, bitch! Um, she was then disarmed by the police, who attacked her with brooms. Good job, police. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Yep, that's, that's what it says. Wait, were they standard issue brooms? Were they push brooms or sweet brooms? I'm going to go with push brooms. Were they, were they organic bristles or plastic? I mean, back then, 
probably, probably organic. Oh, I was thinking like you know, like the straw. I guess maybe, maybe Th- that's why I mean by organic. I I couldn't think of the other um, word. But anyways, they disarmed her, and she was admitted to Morissette Psychi- Psychiatric Hospital. It's a different hospital this time. The other one kept letting her go. Exactly. <laughs> Catherine told the nurses she had intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired David's car, which had allowed him to leave and then kill both David and David's mother when she arrived in Queensland. When police informed David of the incident, he left his girlfriend and moved to Aberdeen with his mother to support Knight. That's what it says. But I'm guessing, I don't think he was there to support her. My guess is he was there to protect his mom. Okay, okay, wait. So his mom was living in Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. So he moved back to Aberdeen because Catherine was like, I'm going to kill David and his mom. Yeah, apparently. I Yeah, here's the thing. Abusers do maintain this really really unusual hold over their victims so i could totally see the supporting element i think i agree with you more that he's like i gotta be with my mom because my ex is trying to kill I know, her right? apparently not though because and no one's stopping her when Catherine was released in august of 1976 she was released into the care of her mother-in-law and to david so the two people she threatened to kill she was released into their custody. Who the fuck is making these decisions? Yep. They all, as a big happy family, apparently moved to Woodbridge, which is a suburb of Brisbane. Um, and she obtained a job at the Dinmore Meatworks factory because apparently she just really likes working with meat. On March 6th of 1980, they had a second daughter, Natasha Marie. Also a pretty name. That's the one thing she's really good exactly. at. <laughs> four, four years later, though, Catherine left David which is a little shocking, actually, and moved first to her parents' house, and then re- she rented her own um, house back in that the, the town she kind of started in, Molesville And although she returned to work at the, the abattoir she originally worked at, she injured her back the following year and went on, dis- on a disability pension. No longer needing to rent accommodation close to her work, the government gave her a housing commission residence in Aberdeen. So now she moved to Aberdeen. Again. Okay. So, a lot of shit going down in Aberdeen. Yep. So now she's done with David. Here, I just did a brief list of other relationships that she had. Because why not? <laughs> so other relationships. Started with a different David. This time, David Saunders. Um, Catherine met David. He was 38 years old in 1986. A few months later, he moved in with her and her daughters. Although he kept his old apartment in Scone, which is, I would love to live in Scone. Oh, my God. I bet they have terrible scone, scones, scone? though. I don't know. I bet, they, I bet like, that's their thing. Yeah. Like, they're rejecting. Welcome to Scone. Our scones suck. Scones are illegal. Um, Baguettes only. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Catherine very soon became jealous of what he did when, you know, the, ver- the, the whole an abuser getting, like, jealous when they don't know what you're doing, like... Because they're not a lot, they can't control your actions. Yeah, yeah. So she, she started having a big issue with that, and she would often throw him out. Like she'd let him back, but she would often throw him out. Uh, he would then move back to his old apartment, or she would follow and beg him to return. So it's just kind of this this shit shitty is cycle. exhausting. Uh, in May of 1987, so they'd been dating about a year. Uh, she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo pup in <gasps> front of him. For no more reason than as an example of what would happen to him if he ever had an affair before going on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan. Why would you kill the dog? Can we just, like, s- yeah. seriously? Like, I it, So sometimes you hear these stories of incredibly violent people who, like, 
commit acts of horrific violence over and over and over. And it's like, okay, when was someone going to step in and be like, this person is clearly right. engaged in a pattern well, like, of horrible behavior. This she was, you know, put into a mental asylum three times and every single time they let her go. Like, and yeah. it was for violent yeah. behavior. It wasn't like I had exactly. a breakdown or I was feeling suicidal. Like, not that you shouldn't be, I, not that you shouldn't get treatment for that, but she is a clear danger to others. What the fuck? And she's not getting the treatment she needs because she's only in there for a few days before she checks herself out. Or they're like, she's fucking fine because she's not actively trying to kill anyone right now. Yeah. You didn't teach her to deal with her triggers or how to address her issues. So even though all of that happened, he stayed with her because, you know. Abuse is a fucking mess. And in June of 1988, they had a daughter together named Sarah. Hmm. This prompted this David to put a deposit down on a house. Catherine would then go off to pay off the deposit when her workers' compensation came through a year later. Catherine went on to decorate their house with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jacket, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. No surface was left untouched, including the ceiling. Jesus Christ. It's like the creepy log cabin you wander into in the horror movie where you're like, nope. Right? (laughs) After a different argument, she hit David in the face with an iron this time before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Oh, my God. This prompted him to move back to Scone. But I don't w- care if they don't have scones there. Right. I need, I need to get the he fuck out. He would later return and find that she had cut holes in all of his clothing. He would then take a long service leave and go into hiding. Probably the right thing. Smart. Catherine tried to find him, but no one would admit to knowing where he was. Thank you. Yeah. Several months later, he returned to see his daughter and fa- found that Catherine had gone to the police and unjustly told them that he was afraid of them. They issued her an apprehend violence order, which is an AVO against him, which I think is like their Australia's version of a restraining, a restraining order. order. So she went to the police saying, oh, I'm scared yeah. of him after he had run away. And so she had a restraining order on him. Right. Fucking bitch. So after that, she met a man named John Chillingworth, which is a great last name. That is a great last so name. So this is 1990 now. And she became pregnant by him before they got together. He was a 43-year-old former co-worker of hers at the Abattoir. I'm just going to keep saying that word because I really like it. It is a good word. She's she's slaying at the Abattoir, though. Like She's meeting everyone through work. Uh, And she gave birth to a a boy this time the following year. Uh, There's not too much detail on their relationship. Uh, It lasted about three years before she left him for someone else who she had been having an affair with. Lucky Chillensworth. <laughs> right? So the person she had been having an affair with and who she left Chillensworth for is named John Price. To be more specific, his full name is John Charles Thomas Price. John Charles Thomas Price. That dude has three first names and I love right? it. Right? So he already was a father of three children when he started having an affair with Catherine, Catherine. who had three children of her own. Oh my God. Again, gross ass Brady Bunch. Right. Supposedly he was a quote unquote terrific bloke. Uh, He was liked by everyone that knew him and uh, his marriage had ended. So he wasn't cheating on his wife. Um, And so his youngest daughter, the two, his, he had a two year old daughter. She remained with the former wife while the two older children lived with him. 
John was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation when she moved in with him in 1995. But his children liked her and he was making a lot of money working in the local mines. And apart from a few violent arguments, at first, quote unquote, life was a bunch of roses. I, this is not to victim blame, but I, as a society, I don't feel that we take violence committed by women very seriously. Oh, we don't. And it's terrible. There was actually a story I heard. It was on, um, oh, fuck, I can't remember his name. Bill Burr's podcast. Jared shared it with me. He's a, he's a comedian. Um, and basically he had, uh, asked listeners to send in their best revenge stories. And long story short, there were these two roommates in college one of them, really beautiful, you know, yeah, sleeping around, doing her thing. And the other roommate was very jealous. And there may have been some competition over a boy. I can't remember. But basically, the pretty, let's call her the pretty roommate, uh, would get drunk a lot. And so one night she gets really, really drunk. And the other roommate actually kind of like encourage her, encourages her to drink more. And while she is passed out on her bed drunk... The roommate takes black hair dye and dyes half of she's got this like gorgeous blonde hair. She dyes half of the blonde hair black. And then also she tries to at quick trigger warning because this is sexual assault, tries to dye a lightning bolt in her pubes, but fucks it up and just ends up like with black hair dye all over like the inside of her legs and her, you know, privates and all that. And she can, the the girl is passed out, but she's like semi aware of what's going on. So she's like moaning. And I'm like, this is really horrifying. And the person writing this in is the girl who who committed the crime. That's terrible. And so what happens is obviously the next morning, the, the victim wakes up and calls the cops and reports her. But it all gets swept under the rug because, like, oh, girls are just bitchy like that. That's bullshit. And then uh, uh, this is according to the person who wrote in the story, the committer of the crime. I guess the girl, like, died, cut her hair short, dyed it all black, and was even more stunning than ever. I was like, man, way to rise from the ashes like a phoenix. But that's a that's sexual assault. That is a crime. That's not a funny, haha, I was a bitch in college story. No. But because we don't take violence committed by women seriously, no one gave a shit. Right. And That's this is terrible. the same thing. It's like, well, yeah, you know, she's a little rough around the edges. You know, she likes fine. to brawl, but it's not that big of a deal. No. Yeah. Again, not victim blame, but just as a society, we do not take right. violent women seriously. So several years into their relationship, Catherine and John had a fight over Uh, His refusal to marry her. Like, he was like, I've been married. You've been married. Whatever. Uh, In retaliation, she videotaped items that she thought he had stolen from work and sent the videotape to his boss. Although the items were not technically stolen, they had been scavenged from the company's rubbish bins. They were, like, out-of-date medical kits that he had taken. And unfortunately, his boss had no no choice but to fire him, even though he had been there 17 years. Oh, that's And remember, sucks. he was making good money. Yeah. Well, she's sabotaging him financially, so he's more dependent on her. Unfortunately, that day he was like, fuck you, bitch, and kicked her out of the house. <laughs> she returned to her own home while news of what she had done spread through the town. A few months later, uh, John restarted the relationship, although now he refused her, uh, refused to allow her to move in. He was like, okay, we can start dating again, but you're going to live at your place. I'm going to live at mine. Um, The fighting became even more frequent, and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with them while they remained together. And unfortunately, 
that's valid because you, why would you want to be around someone so shitty like Catherine Knight? But at the same time, he that needs is, that support. Yeah. Well, he needs that support as the victim of abuse, but also that is one of the tactics that abusers use to isolate their victims. They whether whether they're manipulating the victim or really just like putting out that air of shittiness where no one wants to be around them, they isolate their victim by pushing everyone else away. Yeah. So in 2000, man, so recent. I I always forget how recent this was. Um, a series of increasingly violent assaults on David culminated with Catherine stabbing him in the chest. Fed up with everything, he kicked her out of the house and was like, all right. We're done. So on February 29th, because apparently this was a leap year. (laughs) Oh, no. He stopped at the Scone Magistrate's office on his way to work and took out a restraining order in an attempt to keep Catherine away from both himself and his children. That afternoon at work, David told his coworkers that if he didn't come into work the next day, it was probably because Catherine had murdered him. Oh, my God. Despite their pleas for David not to return home, he stated that he was afraid that Catherine would kill his children if he did not. Oh, call the police and get them to pick up right? your kids, please. David arrived home to find that Catherine, although not there herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. The second I found that out, I would nope the fuck out of there. Yeah, no. He then spent the evening with his neighbors, oh, thank God, before returning home and going to bed at 11 p.m. You're an idiot. Ugh. Earlier making comments which have since been interpreted as a crude will. She later arrived at his house while he was sleeping and sat watching television for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke him up and they had sex, after which he fell asleep. So, like, when I hear, obviously, she's a murderer, spoiler, but whenever I hear a murderer say, like, yeah, I had sex with the victim and then I killed them, I'm always like, yeah, did you, though? Yeah. Like, exactly. I never, I never believe that. This is interpretation. Yeah, so. At ugh. 6 a.m. the next day, the neighbors became concerned that David's car was still in the driveway, as normally he would have been at work by now. And then when he did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. So basically a health check. Nowadays done by the police. Apparently this one, they sent their own worker to check on him. Yeah. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on his bedroom window to wake him up. And they alerted the police after noticing blood on the front door. Oh, my God. Police arrived at 8 a.m. So two hours later. Breaking down. Well, I guess two hours after the neighbor initially noticed that he hadn't gone to work. Not two hours after they called the police. Okay. Breaking down the back door, police found uh, David's body with Catherine comatose from taking a large number of sleeping pills. She had stabbed him with a butcher's knife while he was sleeping. According to the blood evidence, he awoke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape while Catherine chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but he either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hallway where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Catherine went to Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from Price's account at an ATM. David's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and back of his bodies, with many wounds extending into vital organs. Several hours after David had died, Catherine skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook on the architrave of a door to the lounge room. So I think it's like the, the it's one of those like curved doorways. The archway? No, it says architrave. Right, but it's the It curve. is, yeah. It's yeah. like a fancy door, a fancy archway from one room to another. She then decapitated Price and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potatoes, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy, 
in two settings at the dinner table. Who the fuck serves pumpkin? Along with each notes beside uh, notes beside each plate, each having the name of one of his children on them. That's fucked up. She was preparing to serve his body parts to his children. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, but it is speculated that Catherine had attempted to eat it but could not. This oh, is- I'm sorry. You really yeah. couldn't stomach eating a human being? Jesus Christ. Good to know right? you have a line. This has been put forward in support of her claim that she has no memory of the crime. That's bullshit. David's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot's still warm, estimated to be between 104 and 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which is between 40 and 50 degrees Celsius, indicating that the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Sometime later, Catherine arranged the body with the left arm draped over... An empty 1.25 liter soft drink bottle with legs crossed. Not sure why. This was claimed in court to be an act of defilement, you know, beyond the skinning. I was going to say, I'm sorry, this whole thing isn't an act of defilement? Demonstrating Catherine's contempt for David. Catherine left a handwritten note on the top of a photograph of David, bloodstained and covered in a small pleash of flesh. It read the following. Time got you back, Jonathan. For raping my daughter, you to Beck, which was uh, David's daughter, for Ross, for little John, which was his son, uh, now play play with little John's dick, John Price. That's what her notes are. Remember, she couldn't Remember, read, yeah, or she couldn't write. read or write. So, so like, this is- half of it, like, raping is spelled as rapping. Uh, daughter is spelled D-O-U-T-E-R. So, like, you know, the the accusations in the note were found to be groundless, apparently. Well, it's it's crazy because it's it's she she doesn't know how to write and then she's just got a whole bunch of crazy dumped in there. So, of course, it sounds like the gibberings of a madwoman. Right. So Catherine's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected. So she was like, I'll plead guilty to manslaughter. And they're like, no, I think we have enough evidence to fuck you. She was arraigned on March 2nd of 2001 on the charge of murdering David Price, to which she entered a plea of not guilty. How? Her trial was initially fixed for July 23rd, 2001, but it was adjourned due to her counselor's illness and set for October 15th. I thought you were going to say October 31st for a second. Like, of course this is on Halloween. When the trial finally did commence, Justice Barry O'Keefe, which was the providing justice, offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five accepted. Five were like, nope, I'm getting the fuck out of here. What? Okay. Knowing what we know about this crime, would you stay? Like, like if you were, I think a juror, I would probably be like, no, I'll stay. I think I would too. I, I, I don't know. It's stuff it's like my, that doesn't like pictures of blood and gore don't really bother me. I, I think it would fuck me up, but I think like if, be, if if they said it was a kid, I would be, I would be like, no, I can't fucking do that. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things. Like everyone obviously has their line of what they can tolerate, but I think for me it would be one of those things. Like I feel like obviously someone has to do this job. Why not? Why me? not me? This exactly, is important yeah. to you know pay witness to what this poor man went through and to f- have justice. Yeah, you know, right. The judge then read out the witness list to the prospective jurors, and several more dropped out. After the jury was impaneled, because they probably knew someone on the witness list. Well, wasn't this like a pretty small community? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Catherine's attorney then spoke to the judge, who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. Oh, thank God. So they didn't even have to see the pictures or anything? It was made public then that the justice had advised the the council member to change his plea. 
like because they kind of knew he did it. Yeah. He then adjourned the trial and ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Catherine understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was make fit to make such a plea. So they were like, he was like, I suggest you make a guilty plea, but let's make sure she can. Exactly. Which is smart because otherwise that could get appealed later on and she could be walking around stabbing more people. Exactly. Catherine's legal team had planned to defend Catherine by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did consider her sane. She was diagnosed or rather, I guess at this time, it maybe wasn't diagnosed, but they said that she suffered from borderline personality disorder, which is exactly what they were talking about. It's like it's that extreme one side or the other. Right. My, my thing with this is. She sent his kids to go to a sleepover. She has a history she of... She 100% knew what she was doing. Literally stabbing people. Like, she's d- basically done this before. She's almost killed people. and She's held people up at knife point. Like, you can't tell me that this was just an extreme dissociative episode. Like, right. she has a long history oh, yeah. of violence. Don't worry. I mean, you know the ending. I do, but it, it just it just blows so, my mind that they're like, she didn't know what she was doing. Fuck no, off. They're, they're saying she was sane. They're not saying she didn't know what she was doing. Oh, I thought you were saying that they were like, yeah, she probably had a disassociative amnesia they, episode. No, her her lawyers claimed amnesia and disassociation, which psychiatrists support, but they do consider her sane. Okay, but psychiatrists think that she probably doesn't remember doing they don't what know. she did. They don't know. You know, it's one of those things. They, You can't really say that she doesn't you know okay i think so she <laughs> no no reason has ever been given for a guilty plea and despite giving it Catherine still refused to accept responsibility at the sentencing uh Catherine's lawyers requested that she be excused from hearing some of the details of what she did the judge said nah good on him like you did it <laughs> when timothy Lyons took the stand i don't know who he is he didn't they didn't describe i think he must have been one of the forensic people um, because he went to, onto the stand and described the skinning and decapitation that she did. She became hysterical and had to be sedated. It's probably an act. I was going to say she sounds you don't like know. a drama you, queen. I, it's hard to know. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked with never to be released. This is the first time... That this has been imposed on a woman in Australian history. Wow. Finally! In June 2006, Catherine appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in prison without possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Three justices, Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Lantham, dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeals in September, with Justin McClellan writing in his judgment, quote, This was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. That pretty much sums it up. Yep. Well, she got away with so much... And finally, she she committed a crime that was so she was gonna fucking feed heinous. him to his children. Yeah, where it's like everyone had to be like, "Oh shit, she's not just like a crazy lady. She's like right. dangerous." And it like you hear so many of these crimes where the the perpetrator has this long history of violence, and it just is never quite taken seriously or or even treated. I do believe in rehabilitation. I do believe that people can get better and change their tendencies, but if they don't get the treatment that they need, then well, and it's the not going to support. Change. Like this is not something that you can do overnight. Exactly. Or it's like, oh yeah, this person raped someone, but like, you know, it's just like it's a fine. bad it's just girls night. being girls. 
In her case, yeah. Usually we hear boys being boys, but in this case, I don't think people took her seriously because she was a woman. And well, this and is why sexism you told, hurts us all. You know. In this one? No, the story you told about the girl that like sexually assaulted her roommate by Oh yeah, 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 yeah. From girls the, will the be Bill girls Burr podcast. Yeah, like, oh, it's just a bunch of bitchy college girls. You know how they are. They get so crazy over yeah. boys. Like, that's not what that is. This that this shit isn't normal. Like, in what world is any of this acceptable? Yeah, who or goes, I'm just gonna like, molest this person in their sleep because they're being because I got them drunk and because they're pretty and I don't like it and like they're into the guy that I'm into. Fucking a right. Why didn't I go second? <laughs> Because that's how that's this podcast where I am works. right now. Ugh. Well, here's the thing. I I remember reading her story when I was a kid. I've heard her story on multiple podcasts. I forgot how recent it was. It, like, I mean, obviously, I too. like, I realized it when I was doing my research. But yeah, I was like, man, this was recent. Yeah. Two thousand. It is 20 years 2000 ago. feels very recent, even though it's 20 years ago. But yeah, this has been a, a good PSA. Women can be violent, awful human beings who need to be dealt with, too. So. Yeah. That about sums it up. All right. Well, Kelly, what the <laughs> fuck are you thankful for? I'm thankful for my friend Katie. She drove all the way over here yesterday at, after work. So, that, I mean, she didn't even get here till like seven. And she just she hung out for a few hours, which was nice. We haven't seen each other in a long time. You know, we've both kind of been missing each other. Things have been stressful. So I'm just, you know, thankful for her taking that extra time and you know, I even told her, I was like, you know, if you don't want to drive all that way to only spend like two or three hours here, I understand. And she was like, no, I do. And so that was, that was nice. It was an, a well-needed break. Because how far is that drive again? An hour, hour and a half. Okay. Ugh, Jesus, still yawning. Yeah, it's it's getting late over here. Yeah, no, we're we two episodes and two bottles in and we got a third to go. This is we, we only have like half you. an episode. Yes, it's yeah. It's just one of our history happenings. We're gonna which re- is on our Patreon. If you are not a subscriber, you should subscribe for as little as $1. Oh, you're so on top of it. I love it. I love it when you shamelessly plug our podcast. Pluggy plug plug plug. <sighs> plug, plug. <clears throat> um, I'm thankful. Okay, so this actually happened quite a while ago and I just have not had the, you keep forgetting about it. I keep I keep forgetting about it. Um, but I I got the chance. So Jared, uh, his seven month year old niece came over for a sleepover several weeks ago, mm-hmm. and she's so fucking cute and she's so sweet. And so she came for a sleepover so mom could have a night out to like you know just be like a normal person instead of straight up mom right uh so she got some time off we got some quality time with jared's niece and it was it was so much fun like i i was gonna try to go to the gym before she came over and i i got out of work late and didn't have a chance so i was doing a yoga video while she was in her like little stand-up bouncer thing and while i was like doing the yoga i was counting with her like like at her like one two and she was like smashing stuff and giggling and at one point she was sitting on a chair and she would like smash her hands and go bah and then i would mimic does her it, and she would want to have babies it doesn't That's because uh you're like i still don't want babies no because it was it was so much fun um but when she left you were like but to, okay but I'm to good. do that full time is a very different story than doing yeah, a sleepover right. like i was watching some baby youtube stuff with her uh i did have to get up at 2 30 in the morning because she woke up so like i feed her did the diaper put her back to bed um should have made jared do it 
kidding. Uh, it'll be so much quicker if I do it, though, yeah, because exactly. I worked with kids for so long that it, yeah, it's no problem. It's the, it was nice having her there to visit, but you don't want one of your own. Exactly. And actually, even with Jared's PTSD, there were some moments where it was overwhelming. Like, she was not ready to go to bed, even though she was, like, mad crying because she was tired. And so I was like, oh, that's fine. I can let her cry it out for a little bit. And Jared's like... I'm sorry, what? You're going to let her just keep doing that? Like, because it was a lot of noise. And like baby crying triggers a certain part of your brain where it, it does. spurs you to action. But it, it was a lot of fun. And I'm like, I keep being like, I miss her. It was so much fun. And, but yeah, to do it full time is different. But to have a little sleepover with the little, little lady. That's cute. But I was like drumming with her and mimicking her. And she Aww. was like, like getting more into it the more we went. And... Jared has spent a lot of time with her since she's been born, but I obviously have not been yeah, able exactly. to. And so sh- this child makes you work for a smile. You know, some babies, they smile at anything. She'll just kind of stare at you like, the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And by the end of our little sleepover, like the next morning, I looked at her. I was like, hi, little girl. And she's like, ah. And I'm like, yes, I did it. Yeah, but unfortunately, baby- she's, she has no idea. Oh, yeah, who I exactly. Am anymore. <laughs> unfortunately, baby's memory span is yeah. redonkulously short. But then, you know, Jared also has his other little niece who was just born, and you know, so he's building that relationship with her. And so I'm thankful that his family is growing. Uh, I'm really proud of the I we call them the kids because it's Jared's yeah. siblings who are all younger than him. We're really proud of the kids, and they're doing they're stepping up as parents and doing a good job, Cute. and they have wonderful children. So yeah, I'm I'm thankful for that. Oh yeah, babies are cute when you get to give them back. <laughs> yeah, that's valid. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at W A H Pod, or Wapow Pod. <laughs> I always Wapod. think about that when, when we say when we say W H A. I'm always like, we should just say Wapod. 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 Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Whoa, that was really close. Twitter <laughs> at wah underscore pod. Wah wah underscore pod. <laughs> um, our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. And we also have a Patreon and a Teespring where you can get sweet, sweet merch, both if you just search whining about herstory. And we just did a merch shoot, so we're going to show off some of our uh, newer pieces if you haven't seen them yet. But uh, there's a special thing in there for uh, our knitting fanatics who also like to kick ass and stab a bitch with a knitting needle. Fuck yeah. What? I shouldn't be joking about that after what we just talked about. No, Anyway, not. thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye. <laughs>